We are returning this morning to Revelation chapter 14 and the final seven verses as we focus our attention on the final judgment of God as He unleashes His judgment upon all those who refuse to believe upon Him. We read about it in Joel chapter 3, and now we see the unfolding of what Joel was prophesying about even here in the prophecy that John received in Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 14, John says this, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. He who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which was in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw them into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. In our country, as we have been privileged to live here in America, you have heard of the principle that a person is innocent until proven guilty. It's the principle that our country's court systems have been founded upon. But in the heavenly realm, in the heavenly courtroom, the only courtroom that really matters because it is the judgments from that courtroom that will last forever. In the heavenly courtroom, the verdict is that all men are guilty until they are declared innocent by God. It's just the opposite. Here we are innocent until proven guilty, and yet in the divine courtroom of God it is guilty until you are declared innocent by God. Sin is the crime, and guilty is the verdict. Therefore, God, the judge, must exercise His wrath. The wrath of God is a frightening reality. It's frightening, and yet at the same time, it's sad to find in our day and age, especially in Christendom, so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. Unfortunately, many professing Christians even wish there were no such characteristic in the divine attributes of God. While some would, in fact, not go so far as to openly admit to consider wrath to be a blemish on God's divine character, they are far from regarding it as some delightful thing that they know about God. In fact, many Christians would rather not think of the divine wrath at all. Even more than that, it seems in our day when a preacher or teacher of the Word of God even mentions God's wrath at all, there seems to be an underlying current even within their own heart that they too have a secret resentment for God's wrath. As you think about Christians, even, even those that are serious in their thoughts about the wrath of God, even then only few seem to imagine that there's a severity about the divine wrath. And if there is a severity about it, it makes it too terrifying to even warrant any kind of profitable thought. So within Christendom... Most just try to banish the concept of God's wrath from their thinking because it doesn't seem consistent with God's goodness. 
But what does the Scriptures say? What does the Bible teach? Because after all, it is the Scriptures, it is the Bible that is the only true litmus test for God's wrath and what it is. The test as to whether we speak about it or not because of our own comfortability with it or our lack of comfortability with it does not determine the rightness of God's wrath. The test isn't whether the subject of wrath seems to tickle our ears or even encourage those to whom God may bring us together with in our paths of life, whether it affects them in some negative kind of way. That's not what determines the rightness of God's wrath. The real test is what does God say about it? What does God say about His own wrath? And the Bible clearly tells us and shows us that God has not chosen to hide His wrath. He doesn't hide it at all. Nor has He chosen to soften it and the picture of it before men. It is not an attitude that God is ashamed of in any kind of way. In fact, early on in the Old Testament, God said this about Himself in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in verse 39 to 41, God is speaking to the people of Israel as He's using Moses to speak. And God says this, See now that I Myself am He. There is no God besides Me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift up my hand to heaven and declare, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. It's a very serious picture. It's a very clear picture. God describing Himself in words that describe wrath, words that describe vengeance. He will mete out judgment upon those who reject Him. And in Revelation, we have been seeing this unfolding right before our very eyes. As we look into the future, as we we look at what John saw, John from history saw about the future. We are looking back to what is to come in the future and the time in which God will bring about His final wrath upon all those who reject Him and His Word concerning His Son. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, give us a glimpse into the final scene from the perspective of heaven. And it's a picture of divine wrath. We have seen seven pictures as we have began in chapter 14 to unfold these. Pictures which cover the entire scope of the tribulation. We have already seen Christ on the scene. And the 144,000 Jewish preachers who have been giving the gospel all throughout the tribulation, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 14, showed us that. So that was really a look at these 144,000 preserved through the tribulation and standing with Christ in Jerusalem as Christ is there, ready to be king for a thousand years on the earth. And then we saw the heavenly angelic proclaimers of the gospel in verses 6 through 11 as they flew through the heavens unhindered by any evil force because Satan and his demons have been cast down to earth. They are on a rampage in and on the earth. And these angels in tandem proclaiming the truth of the gospel of God to all who are on the earth, sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ and warning them to flee out of the false religion of the Antichrist. It's amazing to us as we think about that, that in the midst of the most heinous and holocaust of judgment that's impending upon the earth by God, God, because of His grace and because of His mercy and because of His love and because God is caring, continues to ensure that everyone hears the truth. 
echoes from us, from the words of Paul in Romans, that no one is without excuse. We saw last Lord's Day that even those who die during the tribulation, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, need not fear because God sees their death as a blessing. Verse 13 clearly says all those who die in the Lord, especially those who die during the tribulation, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So all who die in the Lord are untimely or, or, or ultimately satisfied, I should say, and filled with endless joy because as Russ even prayed, we're in the presence of Christ. We see Christ face to face and the heaven rejoices to bring us home. In fact, the Holy Spirit even says, yes, no longer do they have to labor. Their striving is over. But we know that all is not joy in heaven. As we see it from the perspective of Revelation, there is a seriousness that engulfs the scene as the final judgment of God is enacted. This is the last two pictures before the stage is set. And we begin to see the actual unfolding of the last judgments of God to be poured out upon the earth. We've seen many already through the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, but the bowls are yet to come. And this is a glimpse forward, a glimpse at and a glimpse past those judgments prior to the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is the final exercise of the wrath of God in judgment against rebellious man. Of all the pictures that we have seen throughout our study of this book, nothing is more striking in magnitude than what we see right here. Nothing in human history can compare in any kind of way to the carnage and bloodbath that will take place when God's wrath is poured out Upon the earth in this final war to end all wars. I was reading this over and over and over again this week and I kept thinking to myself, every time I read things like this, my curious mind begins to go down all kinds of roads and I kept wondering about the magnitude of what is about to take place upon the earth. And because of that, I did some research this week on war and death. It's interesting what you can find on the Internet. And obviously, if it's on the Internet, it must be true, right? I wanted to kind of get an idea of the death toll of war. You might be interested to know that even in the short lifespan of the United States of America, nearly now 300 years that we have been around and the wars that we have been involved in, the death toll has been rather minor by way of comparison. It is estimated that during World War I, the total death toll in the world was about 17 million people, military and civilian. 17 million. During World War II, they approximate that 2.5% of the world's population at that time was killed, civilian and military. That estimate to about 60 million people that died during World War II. That's quite a jump. You take the Korean War into account and another 5 million total died, civilian and military worldwide in the outskirts and outcome of the Korean War. Add to that Vietnam, you have approximately another 2.2 million worldwide deaths, not just U.S. and Vietnamese, but all those who were involved. And all of those put together, along with the current Gulf War, that we are in conflict with, which we say is over but really isn't, brings the grand total to around 85 million. 85 million total military and civilian deaths in all of those wars put together. That's a large group of people. But it comes nowhere near the death toll of the final war with Christ. In fact, I found scientists who have use sophisticated math calculations to come up with an estimate of how many will die during the tribulation or, or I should say during the final war, the battle of Armageddon or during this last judgment of God. And they base it upon verse 20 and the human blood volume, what one human body carries per 
in, in blood based upon this blood coming out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles, which they estimate to be about four feet and the distance now of 200 miles. And there's speculation as to how wide that is. Is that four foot wide? Is that however wide it is? And they do all their fancy calculations and they estimate that 2.3 billion people will die in this final war. 2.3 billion. And I find all that very interesting and we can fixate on the speculation of all of that. But the truth is that you don't need all that mathematics to figure out who's going to die. Because God tells us who is going to die, and he tells us back in verses 9 and 10. Another angel, the third one, followed them. We studied this last time. Saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Listen, the number who will die during the final battle is all of those who are on earth who were worshiping the beast. All of those who have rejected Jesus Christ. No one will be spared. All will be crushed in the winepress of God's Wrath. This will be a holocaust like never before. And Jesus will come, as chapter 14, verse 1 says, not as Savior, but He will be coming as judge. Like Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7 tells us that there is an announcement that it is the hour of His judgment has come. Right, The first angel flying in mid-heaven with the eternal gospel says, Fear God and give Him glory. Why? Because the hour of His judgment has come. And then, following Him, the announcement that the great apostate religion is on the precipice of destruction and these remaining pictures depict for us the harvest from the earth. Now, we need to understand that the image of wrath And vengeance, the image of grapes being trampled in the divine winepress is symbolic of God crushing the rebellion that was born way back in the garden in the heart of men. In fact, I want us to turn back for a moment to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus Christ God incarnate speaks about this very time. Matthew 13, Jesus Christ is giving parables in reference to the kingdom, teaching the disciples about the kingdom to come. Not the new earthly, not the kingdom of a new heaven, new earth. This is the thousand year millennial kingdom. This is the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus ruling. And God uses, Jesus here, or Jesus uses the metaphor of wheat and tares. And he says in verses 24 to 30, he presents another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore again or bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles, then burn them up. But gather the wheat into my 
barn. Jesus is illustrating here the final harvest of the earth. And then notice in verse 36, the disciples want some more clarity about this picture, about this parable. He left the multitude, he went into the house, and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. We want some more information about this. We're, we're clear on the difference that there's wheat and tares, but, but help us understand this whole reality of the tares. And so Jesus says in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Tares are the sons of the evil one. So you have right there, right out of the gate, the, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the sower of the good news. And some are children of God. Some are saved. Some are children of the devil. Some who refuse. That's the difference. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. You see, that's the tares. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so too, so it shall be at the end of the age. In other words, in verse 40, he's saying, look, just as you go out into the field and you gather the good wheat and the wheat and the tares that look like wheat, but there's no seed in them, they're fake, they're false, you gather all them up, you throw them into the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. Those who commit lawlessness will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, Jesus is describing for them in detail the judgment to come at the end. Go back to Revelation chapter 14, because in Revelation 14, we see the heavenly view of the unfolding of this event. We're certainly going to get an earthly view of it, but that earthly view doesn't come till chapter 19, verses 19 and 21. In chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence and by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. You see, that's the earthly view of what's to come. This here in Revelation 14 is, I believe, the heavenly view. And we get to see the great harvest of the earth. First, the grain harvest. Verses 14 to 16, then the grape harvest. Both of those, there's a harvester and there's a harvest. Let's look at these together. First, the grain harvest. And I might add that these, while they appear to be similar by way of event, they're not exact by way of their unfolding, even though they are an unfolding of the complete final end and you'll see that as we go i'll try to help you get an understanding of that first is the grain harvest verses 14 through 16 john says and i looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown in his on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand you can stop there for a moment remember even during the final days of the tribulation, God has His own in the earth. There are those who are being saved during the tribulation. There are both wheat and tares. There are genuine believers who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. There will be even those who claim and look similar and yet aren't true at all. And this is the reaping. So there are both the children of God, the wheat, and there are the children of the devil, the tares. Just as Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 13. I believe we are seeing the unfolding of that here. 
There is a harvest of good and a harvest of evil. And the harvester here is Jesus Christ. Notice it says in verse 14, And this one is sitting on a cloud, one like like a son of man. We've heard this language before. This is not unusual language for us. When we briefly looked in our previous times of study back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, in his vision of this very time, said this, beginning in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man coming. Daniel seeing the same vision. Years and years and years before, but Daniel is seeing the same thing. The Son of Man surrounded by clouds. Jesus ascended into heaven, into the cloud. Jesus will return in the same way you saw him go. In all of his regal majesty, Jesus comes. The Son of Man is coming in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Son of Man is a title for Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's used throughout the Old and New Testaments. To describe Christ to describe him specifically in his incarnation. Jesus here, God with us. Christ in his incarnation taking on the form of a man like Philippians 2 tells us. And he comes, notice, with a crown upon his head. It says he's having a gold crown upon his head. This is not the crown of a king here, folks. This is not the diadem. That's the crown of a king. That's the word for a kingly crown. The regal crown. This is the Stephanos crown. This is the crown of a victor. This is the wreath that would have been placed on the head of one who won the race. This is the Stephanos. He has on his head the gold Stephanos. This is the victor's wreath upon his head. He is king, but here John sees him as the victor. This is the Son of Man coming in complete victory. And notice he has in his hand the tools for harvest. He has in his hand the sharp sickle. That razor sharp instrument that allowed the worker in the field to make one swing and cut down a swath of grain. Why is he coming? Why? Because the hour of harvest has come. Notice verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. This is the announcement of the one dispatched by God to give the instructions to the one who will reap the earth. Put your sickle, put in your sickle and reap. Why? Because the hour to reap has come. The product that you are reaping is ripe. In fact, the word used here means it's over ready. It's more than ripe. It's been ready for some time. And I think in the imagery that we're hearing here by God the Spirit, we get the idea and glimpse at the patient endurance of God. God in His patient endurance of wickedness in order that he might save all whom he has chosen to save. The word here, more than right, carries this whole idea that it's well past the time for wickedness to be fully judged. They're more than ripe. The harvest is more than ready. And so in the imagery that John is seeing, another angel comes out of the heavenly temple and brings the command. But you find it interesting in the interaction between the Godhead God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father. You get this language here where God dispatches the angel to come and to tell Christ, the incarnate Christ, it's time to reap. You think, that's kind of strange, isn't it? Wouldn't Jesus know that? He's God. And yet there's an interesting interaction here. Remember Jesus said to the disciples, no one knows the hour or time. 
No one knows the hour of time. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And here God dispatches his angel, one of the... One of many that God has, he dispatches him from the temple to bring the command to Jesus Christ. The hour to reap has come. Now is the hour. You didn't know it before. The angel didn't even know it before. He's standing ready before me for the command to go out. And now God in His divine, sovereign will, omnipotence, who's the only one in the Godhead who knows this very fact, even though they're all God and the mystery of that, I cannot put my hands around. He dispatches this angel to tell Christ, now the hour has come. Now it's time. The harvest is ready. We know the harvester, Jesus Christ. Now the harvest, verse 16. He who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. One sweep, one symbolic sweep of the judging hand of Jesus Christ. No more delay. No more mercy. It's time for the harvest. And Christ swipes the sickle across the earth and the completeness of His judgment and the severity of His judgment is over in one fell swoop. And I believe we get a picture of this judgment from earth's perspective. You say, where is that? I think we see it here in in chapter 16. Go to chapter 16 for a moment. I'll just try to show you this to get a precursor glimpse at where we're headed here in the next few weeks. Verse 1, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. They became blood. The fourth angel, verse 8, poured out his bowl upon the sun. And it was given to it to scorch men like with fire. And men were scorched by its fierce heat. In verse 10, a fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the, the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of their pain. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the river Euphrates, and its water was dried up and the way might be prepared for the kings to come from the east. Verse 17, and the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. In rapid-fire fashion, the next judgments of God come unleashed upon the earth. It's as if one is intent and right upon the other. No time for relief. No time for a break. These angels are given the wrath of God to be poured. And one after one after the other after the other, they pour out their wrath upon the earth. And in quick fashion, the judgment of God is played out. It's as if Christ is swinging His sickle in one fast motion. Judgment happens. The earth is reaped. The tares are destroyed. According to the terms of Matthew 13, the good are kept. The wheat, the bad is destroyed. It will be a swift judgment as the judgment of Christ falls upon the earth. And I believe this includes the seven bowls. So what you see in the first part of chapter 14 in verses 14 to 16 is you get a little bit of a, a small little glimpse as heaven looks upon that judgment moment. And then in verses 17 through 20, John sees another angel in the other part of this final wrath. Notice what he says. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle in his hand. This now is the fifth angel. If we're counting, if you go back to verse 6, you have an angel there. Verse 
8, another angel, verse 9, another angel, verse 15, another angel, now in verse 17, another angel. This is now the fifth angel being used by God in this exercise of his judgment upon the earth. Angels being used as his, as his uh, instruments by which he is giving his judgment out upon all of the earth. This is just another angel that comes out of the temple. And he has another sharp sickle. And verse 18, another angel. This is now another in the line, just one of the same. Angels being used all along for judgment. And here's another of the same kind. And this angel is the harvester. But he is given command by a sixth angel who has the power over fire. Notice that in verse 18. Another angel, the one who has power over fire. Fire. Now, we have to think about the temple for a moment. Let your mind go back to your understanding of the Old Testament and the temple on earth, which is a, a, a picture of what God has already in heaven. In fact, go back to Revelation chapter 6 for a moment. Remember in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9 through 11, when he broke the fifth seal... John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed as they had been should be completed also. This is the altar from which this fire angel comes. The altar of prayer. In the Old Testament it was the bronze altar. The altar of incense. It's where the priest in the days of Israel and wandering through the desert and when they had the temple in Jerusalem, would go into the temple with the prayers of the saints and he would light the, the incense and, and, and that would symbolically, the smoke from that fire and incense would go as if the prayers of the saints were going up to God and the, the people of Israel would be outside praying and it was symbolic of their prayers being rising up to God. And so there is a symbolic altar in heaven. And there the saints symbolically under the altar. As we saw in Revelation 6. Their prayers and petitions are rising to God. What are they praying to God? What are those saints asking God? They're praying that God would send forth his wrath. They've been martyred because they stood for Christ. They died because of the word of God. Because they identified with Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. And they are praying for God to stop all the wickedness. Praying that God would send His wrath. He would give victory to the saints. To send Christ, the triumphant one, to establish His kingdom. So in Revelation chapter 14, the angel comes from that altar. He is the angel, the one who has power over the fire. The fire on the altar symbolizes the prayers rising to God. It represents all the prayers of all the true saints who have pleaded that God to send Christ, pleading with God to judge. And so this angel in verse 18 comes out of the temple and gives announcement to the angel who has the sickle in his hand. He says, let the harvest begin. Why? Because the grapes are ripe for harvest. Notice, put your in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Here, again, they are, they are ripe, but here it isn't that they're overripe. This is a different word. Here they are at the perfect point of harvest. Here the hour has come. It's time for them to be harvested. 
And so the harvest begins. And the angel swung his sickle, verse 19, to the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. It's just saying outside the city of Jerusalem, the wrath of God falls upon men in this moment. And blood came out from the wine press, that is out from the wrath of God, under them up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. And so where the first harvest was corresponding to the bold judgments, I believe this harvest represents the final battle. The war to end all wars. The unmixed wrath of of God being poured out on all wickedness. This is the battle of Armageddon. The grapes of mankind, the wickedness of mankind, are thrown into the divine winepress of God and they are ground to a pulp by the omnipotent power of God. The graphic words that are used here are rather amazing. Blood comes out of the winepress. It goes as high as the horse's bridle and as long as a distance of nearly 200 miles, 1,600 stadia. Stadia is 600 yards. That's roughly 180-plus miles, so they round that to 200 miles when we get the translation here. This is the judgment of God upon all the unbelieving and blasphemous men who reject Jesus Christ. You say, how does all this battle come about? I mean, the sixth angel pours out his, his wrath, right? The bull wrath and the river Euphrates is dried up in chapter 16, verse 12, that the way might be prepared for the kings to come from the east. They're coming from the east in order to have a battle with him who stands in Mount Zion, Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus Christ is there. He has returned. The battle of Armageddon is now on. Verse 13 of chapter 16 says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Disgusting things. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. This is deception without any parameters. And that deception goes out to the kings of the world. Why? To gather them for the war of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 16, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon. The world has said that the Antichrist was invincible. The world will declare and praise the Antichrist as if he cannot... Be vanquished. In fact, in chapter 13 and verse 4, we remember these blasphemous words. Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? It's as if they're praising him as their one true God, as if he is almighty, omnipotent, all power. And who could ever come up against the beast? But he's not invincible now, is he? Not here in verse 20 of chapter 14. He's crushed under the wrath of Almighty God. You say, what imagery? What imagery that God is using? This chapter opens with Christ standing on Mount Zion as the ruling king with his children singing a new song. And it closes with all who have rejected Christ being gathered for the final judgment of the wrath of God upon them. Revelation 19 again gives us that final picture. Go to Revelation chapter 19 and we see in 16 that they're gathered for war. In chapter 19 we see the earthly side of this picture of chapter 14 being unfolded as we get an earthly view of it. Beginning in verse 11, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flaming or a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. 
And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, And their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth of him who sat upon the horse And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's the earthly view. That's the earthly view of what takes place in chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. That's the heavenly view there. This angel swipes his sickle across the earth in one fell swoop. And all of the nations that are gathered in order to come against Christ are destroyed in the winepress of God's wrath. There's never been in the history of the world a war or bloodshed that shall come that or like the one that will come when Christ comes and intervenes upon this earth. When Christ comes, it will be like no other time. This is the judgment of the earth, the day of the wrath of God. So as Christians, listen, as Christians, let us never be persuaded to realize or think that evil will last forever. It will not. As Christians, let us never think in our own minds or in our hearts. Let us never be deceived in any kind of way in our thinking to think that death will always be. Because it will not. Don't ever think that violence and wickedness and murder and war will forever run rampant upon this earth. They will not. According to the Scriptures, according to the truth of the Word of God, evil will rise to its ultimate climax, and when it has run its course, all according to the omnipotent providence of God's design, when it has run its course, God will judge it. And in that intervention, kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will come. The prophet Isaiah spoke about this back in Isaiah 65. And he describes the thousand-year earthly kingdom of Christ like this. Beginning in verse 24 of chapter 65, he says, It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Talking about Jesus ruling on the earth. Before they even ask me, I'll answer. And while they're speaking, I'll hear. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. Jesus Christ will rule with righteousness. And upon earth during that time, there will be only his execution of righteousness. The Bible says to us in the book of Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful thing. We know what's coming. What a responsibility we have as Christians. We know the future. We're not confused about what's coming. We know it. What's our job? Let others know about it as well. That's our task. Let's pray.
Father, we're grateful for these signs in heaven that we are learning about. We're grateful that evil will not last forever, that wickedness will be ultimately vanquished, that death will not reign forever, that all that has been the consequence of sin will ultimately and finally be taken care of when you return. We are grateful that you are allowing us to see these things ahead of time, that we can have an understanding of these things before it happens so that we can warn others, so that we can be a sounding board, a, a, a mouthpiece for you to tell others about the graciousness of your own heart, about the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, about the reality of sin and where sin will take them if they do not repent. Thank you that we know Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have drawn us to yourself and that those who are here who know you by faith know you because you've drawn them to yourself and you have gifted them with faith and that exercise of faith in Jesus Christ has secured their soul for all eternity. Thank you that because of their relationship with Christ they desire now to walk in obedience to you and that by the power of your spirit they are enabled to overcome the deeds of the flesh and to walk obediently to the commands of your word. Thank you for that. Without you, we are nothing. Because of you, we are everything. And so we want to be proclaimers of this truth to others. Lord, help us to be faithful in doing that. If there's those here even this morning who these words have shaken them to their very core because of the judgment to come and they're frightened in their very being at standing before a holy God, Lord, make that be the the motivation, the drive in their heart to come and to, to ask one of us about Jesus Christ, ask one of us about knowing Christ and turn from their sin that they might know you in faith. Lord, thank you for these things and the gift of salvation. Thank you for the richness of your word and what we can learn from it. Thank you that it shows you in all of your beauty and hides not one part. And that we can find a great joy in even your wrath. That you judge sin and because of your wrath you judge the sin of us on Christ. Who didn't deserve it at all. Motivate us with these things we pray. In Jesus name. Amen.